It'll be helpful for you to have Revelation 20 open if you have a copy of God's Word there. Uh, Revelation 20, we're, we're studying this evening verses 7 to 15. And our two main thoughts tonight, the dragon defeated and then the final judgment. The dragon defeated and the final judgment. Well, this morning we began studying Revelation 20 and we saw that the central symbol of the first 10 verses of this chapter is the symbol of 1,000 years. And again, just for those of you this evening visiting with us, Revelation is a book full of symbols. Uh, If you take some of these symbols literally, they just would not make any sense at all. And so it's a, it's a picture book, if you like. It's a, bo- a book full of symbols. And we take the symbol and using what we know elsewhere from God's word, we figure out what those symbols mean. And so when we, and quite often one of the, the symbols that we find in the book of Revelation is the symbol of certain numbers. And so we've seen numbers like seven and 10. We've seen the number of 144,000. We'll see other numbers in the, in the final two chapters of the book that we still have to get to. But we see a number here in Revelation 20, which is a symbolic number. And that is the number of 1,000 years. 1,000 years. And that's a large, substantial, complete period of time. And in line with various other Reformed preachers and writers, uh, I tried to make the case this morning that that 1,000 years is symbolic of the whole time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So we're living during this symbolic 1,000 years now. And as I mentioned this morning, there are really three main things to see about this millennium as it's described for us in Revelation 20. We thought about the first two things this morning. The first of them being that during the millennium, Satan is bound while the gospel is is unbound. Satan is bound while the gospel is unbound. And that's what we see in verses 1 to 3. And so in those verses we have a picture of Satan who is imagined as a great dragon. Uh, Satan is hurled into a pit and the the pit is, is shut and sealed and he is bound. And we thought about various texts elsewhere in the Bible that Describe Satan being bound, that is a picture of what is happening in the world today. Satan is restrained in our world today. He's not able to deceive the nations in, to the same degree that he was before Jesus came into the world. And so Satan does have influence in our world. It's not to say, obviously, that everybody has now come to faith in Jesus. Sadly not. Uh, Satan does have a measure of influence in our world, but... In our world today, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is spreading all through the world. And men and women and boys and girls are hearing that gospel and and getting saved and becoming Christians. And that will happen all throughout the millennium. Second thing that we saw about this millennium is that Satan is bound while the saints reign. Satan is bound while the saints reign. And we saw that in verses 4 to 6. John there sees a vision of heaven. And he sees the souls of Christians who have died before Jesus comes back. And he sees them reigning with Jesus in heaven. And of course that's where Christians are today who have already died. They are in heaven. And they will 
excuse me, they will reign with Christ until the moment that Christ returns. And that was a great comfort for John's first readers who maybe had loved ones who had already died. And they were wondering what's happened to them. And John here shows them that their loved ones are safe. Their souls are in heaven with Jesus. So that's the first two things that we have seen so far about the millennium. That Satan is bound while the gospel is unbound. While the gospel goes out around the world. And also that Satan is bound while the saints reign in heaven. And so the third and final thing uh, that we're going to see. Uh, was, there's one third and final thing to say about the millennium this evening. We'll think about that and then we'll think about the final judgment that we have uh, pictured for us in verses 11 to 15. So first of all tonight, the, the third and final thing to notice about the millennium is Satan released at the end of the millennium but defeated forever. Satan released at the end but defeated forever. We've already been told at the end of verse 3 That after the thousand years are over, Satan is to be released for a little while. Uh, And now we come to that little while in verse 7. If you look at verse 7 with me. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That's just a symbolic way of describing all the nations. To gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So we're being told here friends. That right at the end. Almost immediately before the return of Jesus. Satan is released. And when he is released. He will in a sense goad the nations. He will deceive unbelievers. In one last way for one last time. He will deceive them into thinking that they can triumph over the church. And that they can triumph over the reign of Jesus Christ. And so here in Revelation and elsewhere in the New Testament as well. We are, ta- we, we are, we are being told that there is one last resurgence of evil. At the very end right before the return of Christ. This is the reign of Antichrist. This is the church almost seemingly at its weakest Humanly speaking, at its most vulnerable, right before Jesus comes back. And it's important as we, as we think about this, that Satan is going to have this final last chance, friends, that it's still all under the sovereignty of God. Uh, Revelation has already told us about this period of history a few times before. Uh, back in chapter 16, verse 12, uh, the sixth bowl of judgment. You remember those seven bowls of judgment that were poured out on the earth by God? Uh, Well, the sixth of those bowls resulted in Satan and the beast and the false prophet deceiving the nations into this same battle that we read about in chapter 20. The bowls of judgment are under God's control. They're poured out according to his plan. And so even at the end, friends, even when we get in history to this final Battle, this final time of conflict where it seems as though Satan is in the ascendancy, he is still under the control of God. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, is in ultimate control. And so we read of this final battle. We've seen this final battle described a couple of times already in Revelation. We saw it described back in chapter 19. 
Uh, but if you look at it here in chapter 20, verse 8, it says that, that the nations come out, these nations that are deceived by Satan, uh, and the nations are described as Gog and Magog. I mentioned to you this morning, there's no end of strange and weird uh, and some of them ridiculous videos that have gone out this past week um, claiming that all kinds of biblical prophecies are being fulfilled by this war that's taking place in the Middle East. I saw one preacher talking about Gog and Magog and he said, well now nobody can really be sure but there's a good chance that Magog is Russia and there's a good chance that Gog is Persia which is Iran today and so we see what's happened. Iran has just funded Hamas to carry out these terrorist attacks and so here we have Ezekiel 38 and 39 being fulfilled before our eyes. And I don't think any of that is correct. Gog and Magog are not supposed to be tied to specific nations in history. There has never been a nation called Magog or Gog. Uh, they are names that are found in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And those chapters very much parallel what we read here in Revelation chapter 20. So Gog and Magog are just symbolic names for all the unbelievers of the earth. As they gather together spiritually if not physically at the end of time in stubborn rebellion against Jesus Christ and in hostility against the Christian church. Not the nation of Israel but the Christian church. And notice that in this final battle scene here in verse, Revelation 20 verse 9, God's people are described as both a camp and as a beloved city. And they're surrounded. They're surrounded by the unbelieving nations. And it looks as though this little fragile camp, this besieged city is going to fall. But instead look what happens at the end of verse 9. Fire came down from heaven and consumed these ungodly nations. God's fire protected the Israelites in their years in the wilderness. God's fire fell on Elijah's sacrifice in 1 Kings 18. And protected Elijah on another occasion from hostile armies that were marching toward him. And so this is a picture again friends. This, this fire is a picture for us of God miraculously protecting his people right at the end of history when they seem most vulnerable. God will protect the church right until the end of history. And so this last stand of Satan, if you like, is going to fail. Look at verse 10. The devil who had deceived them, deceived the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So when you read that, you think, well, Satan being released for a little while really doesn't amount to much. So much for Satan's little while and his last stand. He is utterly defeated and he is condemned to judgment and torment forever. See, friends, it often looks as though the church is vulnerable. And again, church in verse 9 there, the descriptions of the church are not coincidental. The church is described as a camp in verse 9. That, that reminds us of the wilderness years for Israel when they were just a, they were a roaming camp of refugees. And they were so vulnerable, humanly speaking, trudging through the desert, men and women and children 
Uh, their enemy nations spying on them for much of that time, watching them. They were, they were slim picking, surely, for the world. And yet against all odds, that camp was preserved by God for 40 years until they arrived in the promised land. Because the Lord of hosts was on their side. God was in the midst of that camp. And similarly, friends, God is with the church today. Even if church buildings close, even if the church loses something of the power or influence it had in one particular place at one particular time, even if church leaders are imprisoned or persecuted as they are today in places like China and Pakistan and North Korea, Jesus Christ loses none of all who belong to him. The saints, as we saw this morning, if they're put to death, they go to glory. They wait with Christ in heaven for the return of Christ to this world. The church will be victorious, friends, even at the very end. Even when it seems that all the demonic and satanic forces of this world are going to wipe the church out. It won't happen. The rider and the white horse will come, as we thought about last week. The Lord Jesus Christ will return. And he will provide the final salvation for his church. And the final destruction of the dragon of Satan. So here are the three things we learn from this vision of the 1,000 years. Satan is bound while the gospel is unbound. Satan is bound while the saints reign in heaven. And Satan is released at the end, but defeated forever. But you might be asking, having considered all of this, why do I need to know it? After all, Jesus has said no one knows the day or the hour of his return. It's, it's in the future. Isn't it enough if I love Jesus? I'm a Christian. I, I seek to live my life according to the Bible. I, I, I worship. I witness. I seek to live out the commandments of God. Why, why do we need to know about all these things? Some of them, yes, are happening now. But what about all these things that aren't going to happen until the very end? Well, yes, in one sense, friends, it's true. We, we just keep going until we see Jesus. And in many ways, that's as good uh, an understanding of end times theology as any else. You, you keep going until you see Jesus. In the end, he wins. We win. It won't matter who was right or wrong about the symbolism of the thousand years. But in another sense, friends, we need to know these things so that we are better equipped to persevere. To make it to the end. Let's say you decide you're going to run a marathon. You will be far better prepared and far more likely to succeed. If someone can tell you exactly what the course will be like. Someone who has already run that course and finished it themselves. And they can tell you what kind of training you should undertake. And what sort of diet you should stick to. Someone who's run that same course can tell you. Well do you know mile 10. Really really steep. All uphill. You need to pace yourself. You need to be ready for that steep climb. Mile 15, mile 16. There's, there's not going to be too many spectators at that part of the course. No one to cheer you on. You're going to have to dig deep mentally to get through miles 15 and 16. That person can also tell you there's no better feeling than when you cross the finish line. It'll be worth it. In the end, all that pain, all that endurance, all those weeks of training, it'll be worth it. There's nothing like it. 
And friends, that's why John's first readers needed revelation. And it's why we need it as well. We need to know what we're going to face and how hard it may be at times. And we need to know that God will deliver us and that we will be victorious in the end. Because there's going to be times when Satan and the world and unbelievers and those who are most hostile against the church are just going to want you to quit. And to believe that you could do something better than keep on following Jesus. Just listen to the words of Jesus himself as part of his teaching on the end of the world. This is from Matthew 24 verse 9 and following. Jesus says to his disciples, Then they, that's the authorities, those who hate the church, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by, by all nations for my name's sake. And listen to this. Jesus says, Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end. Friends, we are going to have to endure. Now, many of us may only have to endure relatively light things rather than full-blown persecution and violence that some of our fellow Christians face in the world today. But we still have to endure. Satan is restrained, but he still has power. Revelation has made that very clear. And the powers at work in this world will tempt us to quit to doubt the word of God, to believe that the attractions of Babylon are better than the promises of heaven. Friends, you must not believe him. Do not fall for his lies. The vision of the millennium is here to tell us Satan is a defeated enemy. The dragon will be destroyed. God will deliver his church. So we keep going. And since Satan is bound and Christ hasn't come back yet, we keep on advancing the gospel as we, as we thought about this morning. We keep on supporting and giving to and praying for and in some cases going to, as Linda even at the moment is going to, nations in the name of Jesus Christ until he comes back to judge the living and the dead. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death is no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then, friends, the end will come. The end will come. And that leads us to the last thing that we're going to consider uh, today from, the, from Revelation chapter 20. And that is the final judgment and the fire of hell. The final judgment and the fire of hell. This is verses 11 to 15, which begin with the picture in verse 11 of a great white throne and end with the picture of a lake of fire. And that lake of fire, friends, is a picture of hell. One preacher has described this passage, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, as the most serious, sobering, and tragic passage in the entire Bible. And it's hard to disagree with that assessment. Sometimes preachers feel a particular weight when it comes to preaching a portion of God's word. And I can tell you I've 
felt the weight of these verses even in the past few hours as I come to preach the truth of them to you. The pictures here are clear. They are easy to understand. But that does not take away from the deadly seriousness of what they are telling us. In these verses, notice firstly the judge. The judge, the judge is not named in the text, but other passages of Scripture as well as other passages of Revelation leave us in little doubt that the one John sees in verse 11 sitting on this throne is Jesus himself. Listen to Jesus' own words uh, regarding this final judgment. John, John chapter 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, he says, I charge you in the, excuse me, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. We could turn to many other texts as well, but the point is clear, friends. Jesus is the one who will enact this final judgment. Jesus is the one sitting on the throne in verse 11. The color white, as we thought about last week in chapter 19, uh, the color white is a symbol throughout Revelation of purity, uh, of righteousness. To this day, uh, a bride on her wedding day will choose white uh, more often than not because uh, whether she realizes it or not, it's that symbol of of perfection, of beauty, of, 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 of uh, purity. And as Christians, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are clothed in white, as we saw last week in chapter 19. But Jesus, friends, is perfectly righteous in himself. He hasn't, had, he hasn't needed the righteousness of anyone else. He has kept all those commands that we heard read earlier on in Exodus 20. He's kept those commands perfectly. And so he sits on a white throne because he is a righteous, perfect, pure judge. The Lord Jesus is perfectly qualified to carry out the final judgment because Jesus is both God and man. In his divinity, he judges us according to the perfect law of God. In his humanity, he judges us as one who has lived a human existence. And who has faced all the temptations to sin that you and I also face. And yet he has never given in to those temptations. He has remained without sin. And so you won't be able to stand before this judge and say, who is he to be judging me? That's what people like to say today. If if someone criticizes them over anything, who are you to judge me? You won't be able to say that to Jesus because he does know what it's like to live in this world. He does know what it's like to live with physical pain or tiredness or hunger. He does know what it's like to be tempted, but he has never given in to temptation. And so he is perfectly qualified to be the judge of each one of us. And so as you stand before this throne someday, dear friend, you will see a judge who knows exactly what you have gone through, exactly what you have experienced. And there is no higher authority in all the universe than him. If you were to begin a court case in the United Kingdom, depending on the merits of your case, you might get all the way up to the Supreme Court. You could keep appealing and appealing and appealing, theoretically, until you got to the Supreme Court and you could go no further. Jesus Christ is above that court and he's above every human court. He is the judge seated 
on the great white throne. The judge. But also then in these verses we see the judged. The judged. Who is it that the Lord Jesus is judging? Whose case has been brought forward for his consideration and verdict? Look at verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Great and small, friends. Everyone. Everyone. Verse 5 has already told us the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So friends, at the return of Jesus, at the end of the millennium, there is the little while that Satan has to try to deceive the nations into destroying the church. Satan will fail to do so because Jesus will appear, pictured as he was last week, the rider on the white horse. And then the final judgment will begin of the living and the dead, the great and the small, believer and unbeliever. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And we could give many more references to prove the point, but scripture is clear, everyone, everyone will appear before the throne of judgment. On what basis will he judge us? Look at verse 12 again. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the dead were judged. It goes on, uh, is this uh, verse, uh, yeah, at the end of verse 12. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And that phrase, according to what they had done, appears again at the end of verse 13. So that's emphasized to us. This is the basis on which we will be judged, friends. These books, of course, are symbolic. Um, they, they, they symbolize God's perfect knowledge of all of our deeds. An accountant will talk about keeping the books, even though nowadays probably all the data is digital. Uh, but the books are to be the accurate record of every transaction. God has that record for you and for me. Every thought, every word, every deed. The motives behind every word and every deed. The secret things, the shameful things, the private things. Celebrities sometimes they're accused of some tawdry behaviour. Their last line of defence is, that's my private life. People who have made a point of displaying their lives for all to see, but nonetheless, uh, at their last resort, they will say, that's my private life. Friends, there will be nothing kept private at the final judgment. Each one of us is to be judged according to what we have done. And, and I want you to be clear this is symbolic language. It's not to take away from the fact that there will be a literal judgment. It's not to say that every single thing you have done will be read out. I mean, how could that possibly be the case when you think it through? Billions of people. God is not just going to read out the record of every single one of us. We read earlier from Matthew 25, Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. But nonetheless, the verdict that is rendered will be a verdict based on the things 
that you have done. Your record will be there in front of the judge. And it will testify that you have broken God's law again and again and again. We read it earlier. No other gods before me. Guilty. Honour your father and mother. Guilty. Do not covet. Guilty. And on and on we could go for all of us, the preacher included. And as I said when we read from Exodus 20, your conscience already tells you these things. You're guilty. And yet you will have to stand before this judge. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judge, the judged, and then the judgment. Look at verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, this lake of fire, friends, symbolizes conscious, eternal suffering. Conscious, eternal suffering. Hell. The Bible describes it elsewhere as the fire that goes up forever and ever. In other words, it's never going to end. And you might ask, and Christians might even ask, well, well, why is that? Why must it last forever? Why can't God punish people for a short time and then it just be over? Part of the answer, friends, is that God is an eternal, holy God. He has always been and he always will be. To sin against him, to break his commandments as all of us have done, is to do what one writer describes as committing cosmic treason even in human terms the punishment has to be seen to fit the crime if some of those terrorists from Hamas were to be caught who planned the dreadful things and did the dreadful things that they did last weekend you wouldn't just say well a 50 pound fine will do the job it's life that is required and similarly were God not to punish sin in the way that he does in hell forever the offence would stand against him forever because he will exist forever. It would be a wrong that would never be properly put right. Justice would never be fully done and so the sin must be punished forever in hell. And the idea of hell is a joke to many people in our culture today. It's a word that's used flippantly. People will just say, you know, what the... In response to the smallest problem. Just yesterday I was out for the day with uh, our girls. And a song was played where we were walking out over a sound system. Highway to hell. That old uh, rock and roll song. And the song is sung as if this is just a laugh. You know you're just heading off on a joyride. If hell isn't treated as a joke today, it's minimized to something less than it really is. One writer says that for most people today, hell means the Holocaust or the, the suffering in Haiti. If you remember many years ago with that dreadful earthquake, war zones are described as hell. Cancer is described as hell. And certainly in the sense that those experiences are horrible and they cause crippling suffering for the victims and, and, those, and the loved ones of the victims, We can maybe say they are hellish, perhaps, but they are not hell. Hell is conscious, 
never-ending psychological, spiritual and physical suffering for those who die without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who speaks more about hell than anyone else in the whole Bible? Jesus. Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else. The Greek word for hell is used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those times, it's Jesus who speaks it. So you can't just have Jesus, the gentle shepherd, the loving person, the good teacher. If you don't believe in hell, if you think it's a bit over the top or out of date, then you're saying that Jesus is a bit over the top or out of date. Here's what Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish pastor, said on this subject. Would Christ have wept over Jerusalem if there were no hell beneath it? Would he have died under the wrath of God if there were no wrath to come? Go to Golgotha, the place where Jesus died. See the vial of wrath poured upon his breaking heart. Why all this suffering in the spotless one if there is no wrath coming? On the unsheltered, unbelieving head. Jesus spoke about hell, friends, because hell is real. And there are a few things that we need to understand about it. Firstly, we need to understand that hell is the complete removal of the gracious and merciful presence of God. Why do unbelievers, people who don't love Jesus, people who break God's commands and and don't repent of it, why do they wake, wake up in the morning and enjoy many of the same things that the rest of us enjoy? Food in the fridge, heat in their homes, a job to go to. It's because God shows a measure of grace to everyone today. What we call common grace to all people. In hell, that measure of grace is entirely removed. In hell, God is present in pure wrath, anger, and holy hatred of sin. We also need to understand that those who go to hell do not suddenly become innocent victims. Sinners who go to hell are still sinners. Revelation 16 verse 11 told us that those upon whom God's judgments fell did not repent of their deeds. Hell is full of people who do not repent. You think back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve lost out on fellowship and communion and peace with God by choosing sin. And that sin separated them from the relationship they once had with God. Hell, friends, is simply the destination if you choose to remain separate from God. There is peace with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that peace is rejected, you remain separate from God. And the end result of that is hell. One writer says, the sinner in hell does not become morally neutral. They're still sinners who have not and will not repent. And so friends, it is right to say that in a sense, in a sense, God will say to those who have separated from him and never taken up the offer to be reconciled with him, in the end, he will say to them, have it your way. Have it your way. You you, you choose not to be in a relationship of worship and fellowship and repentance. You choose not to come to repent of sin in the name of Jesus Christ and to worship God as your king and to reject idolatry and sin. Hell is the place that people go who continue in that state. 
But the judgment for those who are judged according to what they have done is the eternal conscious torment of hell. It's described elsewhere in the scripture as darkness, as weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a picture too in one of Jesus' parables. It's a place of unquenchable thirst. This is the final judgment that the judge will render on those who stand before him still in their sin. And so I have to warn you today, whether you're here in this building or listening elsewhere, you are on a highway to hell if you do not know Jesus. And it is no joke. Fire is headed towards you. Wrath is headed towards you. Eternal damnation and punishment is headed towards you. Because of what you have done. And there's only one way to escape this dreadful judgment. Notice the other book that is mentioned in Revelation 20 verse 12. The books were opened. That's the books full of the deeds of mankind. But notice then another book was opened. Which is the book of life. This book has been mentioned several times already in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. It's the book of life. The the full title of it is the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And if your name is in this book, you're not judged according to what you have done, but according to what he has done. Jesus has been slain. Jesus has had hell come upon him. That's what happened when he was on the cross. He has had God's wrath poured upon him so that it doesn't have to be poured upon you. Verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The implication there, friends, is that if your name is found written in the book of life, you're not thrown into the lake of fire. And you have waiting for you the wonderful things that we are going to get to in Revelation 21 and 22. Those wonderful words of Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you're judged on the basis of what he has done. And then your deeds <coughs> accord with the fact that you belong to him. It's not that we're saved and then we just live however we like. Paul says that we're saved to do the good works that God has prepared for us to do. And so you're judged on the basis of what Christ has done for you on the cross. And based on the fruit then of your life lived in faith to him. Could there be any better news to hear dear friend than this? No condemnation. No condemnation for your lies, your pride, your lust, your self-righteousness, your greed, your sin. No condemnation if you trust in the blood of the Lamb. If your name is written in this book. Is that where you stand this evening? Is that where your name is this evening? In the Lamb's book of life. I'll close with the words of Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, preached a very powerful sermon on this subject. And regarding hell, he said, the pit is prepared, the fire is made ready, the furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. Consider the danger, friend, and flee to the Lamb. Today, He is a shepherd, a shelter, and a saviour. 
When he comes again, he will be your judge. And you must be ready to stand before him. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Amen.